Hi, I'm Nalp, and I'll be reading a Bible passage from Galatians 2, verse 11 to 21. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him to the hypocrisy, so that by the hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it, then, that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not, by, and not Gentile sinners... Know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have to put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through, for through the law I died to, live, to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in body, I live by faith in Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Nalip. Very good reading. Now, there is an outline if you need it. So if you would like one, um, you can go grab one and I'll get ready soon. Mary's got some if you need an outline. And there are pens on the pews if you'd like to write notes. That's, that's up to you if you find that helpful. Okay, well, let's uh, turn to God in prayer as we consider this very important passage. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do speak to us and you continue to speak so through your word. We pray, Lord, that as we consider this passage, we may understand Christ and what he came to do for us. Help us to understand grace. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, mistakes happen all the time, don't they? Mistakes happen. There are silly mistakes which you can just laugh off. It's just a silly mistake. But then, of course, there are serious mistakes in life that we make, aren't there? Serious mistakes which have ongoing consequences. So what are some of the mistakes that you have made in your own life? Think about that. Well, let me share with you two of the mistakes that I've made. Now, some of you may know that just last month, I celebrated, Yvonne and myself, we celebrated our 10th year anniversary. 10 years, that's quite a feat. Uh, but the mistake I want to talk about, it wasn't um, last month, but 10 years ago, in our first year, in fact, on our first day. Well, this happened on our first day. We were, before we were married, we were on the way to the church 
in the limo. And my brother was there. He was my best man. And he suggested to me, have you memorized your wedding vows? You know, he said to me, you know, it will be really special on your wedding day to memorize your own wedding vows. I thought, that's a pretty good idea. Yvonne was there in the car and we thought, yeah, well, we'll do that. So on the way towards church, we're desperately trying to memorize our wedding vows. You can guess what happened. At the exchanging of the vows, I, I got through the first few lines quite okay, but then I had a mental blank in front of the whole church. Mental blank, couldn't remember. I couldn't remember that marriage was, in fact, for rich or poorer in sickness and in health. I forgot that bit. Didn't go down too round. I was in front of the church. And the minister, he had to secretly, oh, quietly whisper the vows to me. So that was my turn. It was a big stuff up, big mistake. But then when it came to Yvonne, well, you know what? Yvonne memorized her wedding vows perfectly. She was flawless. Yvonne knew what marriage was about. I had the problem. And so that's how our marriage began. My brother, so wise of him to suggest that to us, he, at his wedding, he, he didn't do that, he didn't memorize his vows, he just read out of the news, uh, the bulletin. So that was the big mistake in 2003. But it wasn't all the mistake of 2003. In fact, after our honeymoon, just after getting married, after our honeymoon, new husband, I thought, I'll be a good husband. And so I said to Yvonne, I'll do the laundry. And I did the laundry without her supervision. I thought that was a nice thing to do, a very serving thing to do for a new husband to do for his new wife. So I washed all our clothes, all the clothes we brought from our holidays. We went shopping, a lot of nice clothes, put it all in together. <laughs> and when it came out, Yvonne's new shirt never got to wear at all, it was damaged. The mistake was, you meant to separate colours, who would have known that? It's meant to be obvious, but it wasn't to me. I was only 23. And after that incident, I didn't have to do another load of washing for about three years until <laughs> Esther was born. And so in life, there are silly mistakes like that, aren't there? Silly mistakes like that, we can just laugh it off. But of course, there are mistakes in life that aren't so silly. Mistakes that have consequences, not just in this life, but in the life to come. And of course, these are mistakes that have to do with getting the gospel wrong. Getting the message of Jesus, his death and his resurrection wrong. Getting the message of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone wrong. Getting that wrong, well, that's not a silly mistake. That's a serious mistake. And so I'm getting us tonight to consider this passage in Galatians where the gospel was made wrong. Peter got the gospel wrong. And so in our passage, we see a confrontation between Peter and Paul, two apostles, and we see the consequences of getting the gospel wrong. Now, as we consider this tonight, I want us to consider this because as a church family, as a church, we're on about gospel ministry. And so we want to ensure that all our ministries are on about getting the gospel right and not wrong. And so I want all of us here tonight, the church, parents, youth, children, and the church family to be reminded of the business that we're in. We're in the business of the gospel, the business of ensuring that we keep the gospel undistorted in every way. We're in the business of ensuring that we never make a mistake with the gospel. And so let's now turn to our passage. So if you have your Bibles open to Galatians 2, we'll work through most of this tonight. So 
So in this passage, we have Peter. Peter was an apostle. The, the apostle almost of Jesus Christ, a pillar of the church, the foundation of the early Christian church. But Peter, in our passage, made a big mistake, a huge mistake. The apostle of Christ making a mistake. And what was his mistake? Well, we see here that he actually got the gospel wrong. Hard to believe, isn't it? The apostle of Jesus Christ getting the gospel wrong. You see, Peter was acting in a way that showed that he believed Gospel plus. Gospel plus something else. He acted in a way where he was living a life that was inconsistent with gospel alone. And so a gospel plus anything, in fact, is gospel minus. And we'll see that as we consider this passage. To plus any, any to add anything to the gospel is in fact to dis, dis, detract from Christ and is to distort the gospel. So look at verse 11 with me. Verse 11 to 13. When Peter came to Antioch, Antioch is in modern-day Turkey, I, that is Paul, opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. And so when Paul gets angry as as a church, as we read this letter, we need to pay attention. And so Paul goes on, Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. Now, if you think about what Peter did, that's a horrible thing, wasn't it? To eat with a group of people, but then suddenly to draw away from them. I mean, to do that with any group of people would be terrible, but let alone to do that with your fellow Christians. So why did he do it? Verse 12, have a look. Because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. He was afraid of the Jews. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by the hypocrisy, even Barnabas, the trusted Barnabas friend of Paul, was led astray. And so what did Paul do? Verse 14. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? And so as we consider this passage, for Peter, his gospel was gospel plus something. It was gospel plus the Jewish customs. That is, things like circumcision, or here would be the food laws. For a Jewish person to eat a meal with someone who eats pork, well, you'll be considered unclean and defiled. And so for Peter, in his mind, the way he acted, he thought to be a fully-fledged Christian, you need gospel plus Now, it's hard to imagine that Peter would get that wrong. Think about his life with Jesus. He lived with Jesus for several years. He witnessed and saw Jesus eat with sinners, with tax collectors, with lepers, with prostitutes, with Gentiles. He saw what Jesus did. And not only that, in Acts chapter 10, God actually revealed to Peter, Gentiles are acceptable to me now. But it goes to show, even the apostle of Christ was not immune to making this big mistake. And you see, it was a huge mistake. Now, we might consider Peter's action, you know what, he, he's probably, he's still a Christian, he believed the gospel, he might have just made this tiny mistake, we should just overlook it, but Paul certainly didn't think so. It was nothing less than a dis- distortion of the gospel of Christ. And now Paul, in the following verses, he makes clear what this gospel is, and he repeats it three times. He says, whether you're Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter who you are, 
You are justified, that is, you are innocent in God's eyes. God declares you innocent, not on what you do at all, but on the basis of faith, your trust in Christ. And so he says this three times. Look at verses 15 and 16. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the first time. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus. That's the second time, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. That's the third time, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. You see, for anyone to be righteous, that is, innocent in God's eyes, declared innocent by God, that is by faith. That is the gospel. There is no gospel plus anything you do at all. It's just the gospel, this free gift from God where sinners, where evil people are declared innocent because they trust in Jesus. Now, what is this trust idea, this faith idea? Often people are confused by this. Now, there's a Presbyterian minister who lived a while ago, John Payton. Here's a picture of him. He lived back in the 1800s. He was a missionary. He went to the South Pacific from England. That was his honeymoon, to, to be a missionary. Now, he's obviously passed away. He's, he's actually buried in the Kew Cemetery here in Melbourne. But he went to the South Pacific, to the New Hebrides Island, to be a missionary there to try to proclaim the gospel to the people there. And so he worked hard at translating the Bible into their native language. And when he came across the word to, to believe or to trust or to have faith, there wasn't a word in the local language that would translate that. And so in the end, how he translated this was this way. To have faith or to believe, to trust. Well, that means to lean your whole weight upon. You see, to have faith in Jesus is to lean our whole weight upon him, to trust in him, to depend on him entirely. That's the gospel. The gospel does not depend on anything we do. You see, a gospel that depends on us is a distortion. And so that was Peter's problem. So what's the consequences of Peter's mistake? What, what results from thinking that way? Well, there's one major one that I want us to focus on tonight, and that comes in the last verse. You see, to believe the gospel plus something, the gospel plus anything at all, well, in the end, that is to say that Christ was a mistake. To say that my salvation depends somehow on me and not entirely on Christ. That is to say that Christ was a mistake. His death was a mistake. So to make a mistake with the gospel is to make Christ out to be a mistake. To make a mistake with the gospel is to make Christ out to be a mistake, that he didn't have to die. So look at verse 21. 21, Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Now, if there was another way for God to save the world, I want you to think about this now. If there was another way, apart from Christ, that God could save the world, wouldn't God have done so? If living by the law was possible to be saved, wouldn't God have allowed that to be so? I mean, if there was any other way, like, could God have said, look, you guys, just have a cup of tea. Have a cup of tea, and I will forgive your sins. 
If that was possible, wouldn't God have done so? Have a cup of tea, I'll forgive your sins, I'll forgive all your evils, your lies, your greed, your pride, your selfishness, I'll forgive all of that, just have a cup of tea. Sounds quite absurd, isn't it? But if there was another way, wouldn't God have done so? I mean, was God so silly and so cruel to have sent his son into this world to be mocked by people who hate him, to be spat on, to be flogged, to be humiliated, to be tortured, and then to be crucified on the Roman cross? If there was another way at all, wouldn't God have done so? In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus prayed to God with sweats of blood, God, Father, please take away the cup that is the cup of your wrath. God heard that prayer. Wouldn't he have taken away the cup if it was possible? But of course it was not possible. You see, the gospel is about Jesus alone and what he does, never about what we can do. And so we have a gospel plus. If that is what you believe, gospel plus whatever it is, then you make a mockery of the cross, you dim the glory of Christ, and Christ died for nothing. But of course, as we consider this passage, Peter was wrong. Christ did not die for nothing. He died for sinners, for undeserving people like you and me. He died for us, and so his death was no mistake. But when we make a mistake with the gospel, we make Christ out to be a mistake. So that's our passage, and that's what I want us to remember tonight. If we make a mistake with the gospel, we make Christ out to be a mistake. Now, if anything, reading this passage should be shocking to us. It should shock us. Even Peter, the apostle Peter, the pillar of the church, would make this foolish mistake. It shows that if he was not immune to it, us, 2,000 years later, we're not immune to making this mistake as well. And it's perhaps for this reason why so many churches, name any churches, true for all churches, have a very low retention rate. Very low retention rate. I did some research and the statistics are quite shocking. Now I want to ask you, how many youth, how, what's the percentage of youth would fall away after becoming, turning 18, becoming an adult. Any, any thoughts? Think about that. What percentage of youth would eventually fall away and never enter a church again? Well, I did some research. Some figures have this as high as 60%. 60% of youth who go through youth group, 60% of those would not be committed adult Christians. Some as high as 70%. Now, a more conservative figure, I got uh, one from another stat, 50%. That's as good as it gets. 50%. That's the best we can do. And so if you think about it, out of the 40 or so youth that we have in our church, according to the stat, but prayerfully, hopefully not under God, but according to the stat, 40 youth, 20 of them will not be committed adult Christians. Does that shock you? They go through Sunday school, youth group, but 20 of them will not be committed adult Christians. I find that shocking. But you see, as shocking as they are, there is truth in those numbers. Now, I remember my own youth group when I was growing up. I was part of a group of only about 10. There were only about 10 of us, 
teenagers in this youth group. We had a lot of fun. We enjoyed it. Went to movies a lot. We played a lot of games. And it was where I met Yvonne, so that was a good thing. But out of those 10 youth, how many are still committed, church-going, faithful Christians? Only three of us. Only three of us. 70% have fallen away. And those three is Yvonne, myself, and my brother. (laughs) The other seven... Not sure if they've ever entered a church again. So that's shocking, isn't it? Now, if you consider our own church, I want, to, I want you to think about our own church. We've actually been very blessed in this church where we've got quite a good spread in our demographic from young to old. But if you consider carefully, I think there is a gap. I think there is a generation that was lost in this church. I might be wrong, but there aren't many in their 30s from 30 to about 45. There's only very few are scattered there. I wonder whether a generation has been lost in our church because a mistake was made with the gospel. And so when you make a mistake with the gospel, you make Christ out to be a mistake. So why does this happen? Well, this is what I've been saying. When we make a mistake with the gospel, we make Christ out to be a mistake. And if you think about the logic of this, if Christ is a mistake then, But there's no point in trusting in him. Make a mistake with the gospel at the top, you end up with non-Christians. Make a mistake with the gospel, end up with non-Christians. So how could this happen then in a faithful church? Well, you probably heard of this statement. The gospel is taught in one generation. What happens in the second generation if it's not taught? Well, it's assumed in the second generation. And then what happens in the third generation? Well, in the third generation, it's forgotten. In the fourth generation, what happens if it's not taught? Well, the gospel is denied. And so in the first generation, the gospel is taught. They believe. They heard the gospel. They trust in Christ. They lean their whole weight on Christ. The second generation, well, they're they're the ones, well, I was baptized as a kid. I think I'm a Christian. My parents certainly are Christians, committed faithful Christians. I I assume I'm a Christian, but, you know, that's not too important. I'm a pretty good person anyway, and I've got a lot of other things to worry about. I'm assuming the gospel. The third generation. Well, I remember my grandparents, they used to believe. They took me to church some time ago as a kid. They believed, but I don't know what it was they believed, and I don't know why I should believe anyway. Life is going along pretty well. I've forgotten the gospel. That's the third generation. The fourth generation. The fourth generation says... God does not exist. I'm an atheist. Four generations. But I suspect, and sadly, from observation, it actually doesn't take four generations. You can lose it all in one generation. Lose it all in one generation. And so instead of allowing there to ever be a generation that assumes the gospel, we must make sure and see that every single generation is taught the gospel over and over and over again. Those who assume the gospel tend to be those from Christian families. They think, I've been baptised, I've done all the Christian things. I think I'm a Christian, my parents certainly was, but I'm just assuming. But we must make sure that every single generation is taught the gospel. And so I want us now to think about our church and the gospel ministry that we do here, particularly our youth ministry, because it's our youth service and, and it's a good thing for us as a church.
to consider what we do in our youth service. Now, I want us to think about the youth, particularly youth and also kids' church, really, because these are the formative years for any person in becoming a Christian. Now, I'm not sure if you've seen this stat that I'm showing you here. This is from the National Church Life Survey. It was done in 2001, but I think what, what it represents here still holds true. So for all those who become Christians, 39% of them would claim to have become a Christian before they turn 10. So before turning 10, add that together, that's 39% of Christians became Christians before they turned 10. From 10 to 19, their teenage years, 34% claim to have become a Christian in their teenage years. And so what this means is that all those who have become a Christian, who are Christians, became a Christian, about 73% of those became a Christian before they turned 20. 73%. And so what this means is that after 20, only 27% become Christians after 20 years of age. And so what this stat shows is that before turning 20, 73% of people become Christians, of Christians claim to become Christian in that age group. It shows that those younger years are, are formative years. They're the formative years. It means that we need to get kids' ministry right in whatever church you're at. We need to get gospel ministry right. We need to get youth ministry right because they are the formative years. And so that's a time to invest in our kids while they're still at home. And so our youth ministry here is in the business of the gospel. Like all ministries in our church, our youth ministry is no different. It's a gospel-centered ministry. We don't teach in our youth group the gospel. To be a Christian, you must believe the gospel plus Presbyterian rules. We don't teach that. We teach all you need to be a Christian is the gospel. We don't teach gospel plus you need to just live a good life. We don't teach that. We teach you want to be a Christian, you just believe the gospel. We we don't teach gospel plus be popular or gospel be successful or gospel plus be intelligent. We teach you want to be a Christian, just believe the gospel. Just lean your whole weight upon Jesus. We teach the gospel. And so we say, you are all sinners, dead in your sin. All you deserve is death and judgment from God. That's all you deserve. Try to be a good person. Won't give you any merit at all in God's eyes. But you can be saved if you lean your whole way upon Jesus who loves you and died for you. That is the gospel. Lean our whole weight upon Christ. And so if any of our youth are to continue in the faith, be committed adult Christians, then they must know the gospel and believe it. Now, there's a pastor, John Nielsen. He is a pastor in Illinois at College Church. And he observed that youth who remain in church become committed adult Christians are those who tend to meet three of these categories. The first one is they are converted while they're at least um, by their teenage years. That, they, that is, they genuinely believe that they're only saved because of their faith in Christ. They meet that category. Second category is that during their teenage years, they were equipped and not entertained. They were equipped as teenagers and not entertained. And so though we do have fun in our youth group, that is not our primary focus. I want you to remember that. It's never our primary focus. 
It's not what we're on about. We don't exist for the sake of fun and entertainment. And if you think about it, if that is all we are, we can only entertain until they'll find some way to entertain themselves. And so fun and that's what we want, but that's only a byproduct of what we're on about. We're on about the gospel, equipping our youth with the gospel, equipping them to be faithful, committed Christians. And that's actually what we've been working hard. Our youth leaders have been working hard this year. In first term, we've been trying to equip our youth with knowing and understanding the gospel and so that they can share the gospel. We did this course, Evangelism Explosion. I hope you still remember that. In our second term, we try to equip our youth with the big questions of life so that they can defend their faith. And this last term, we've been equipping our youth to read the Bible, to read the Gospel of Mark, so that they can learn to read it on their own. So that's the second criteria, second category. The third one is this. I'm not sure if you realise this, but the third one is very important. Those who remain as committed Christians are those whose parents preach the Gospel to them. You see, in the end, what happens in youth group on Friday night, it only complements what happens in the home. It's only there to complement. It's not there to take over what happens in the home. And so what happens in youth group, in a sense, must be reinforced tenfold in the home. A home where the youth are taught the gospel. A home where they're equipped to live the Christian life. A home that is centred on the gospel. And John Nielsen, this pastor, is very wise. He says this. In general, children who are led in their faith during their growing up years by parents... That is by parents who love Jesus vibrantly, serve their church actively, active parents, active Christian parents, and saturate their home with the gospel completely, while their children grow up to love Jesus and the church. The bulk of this depends on the parents. And so parents, we can never assume, I'm a parent myself, and I'll never assume when my kids reach their teenage years and they make their own decisions, I'll never assume that they are committed Christians. I have to make sure, teach them, equip them, that they will grow up as adult, committed Christians. Because, you see, to assume that our kids are Christians, well, that's just a, it's only one small step to them forgetting the gospel and then denying the gospel. And that will be a huge mistake. So some final exhortations for all of us. Well, firstly, to parents. I want to say this. I'm a parent myself, so I speak to myself as well. We have to make this a priority for our children, that they know the gospel, that they believe it. That has to be the priority. Before Esther was born, when we found out that Esther was, uh, Yvonne was pregnant, Esther was pregnant, Yvonne was pregnant with Esther, our prayer right from the beginning was that she would grow up knowing and loving Jesus. Typical Asians will be, typical Asians or We'll be praying, let's pray that that child will grow up to be a doctor or lawyer. But our prayer was that they'll grow up to love the Lord Jesus. It must be our prayer as parents for our kids. It has to be at their priority. Because in the end, honestly, as, as parents, we can't go around blaming anyone else. If our kids who are in youth group now, when they're adults, they're not going to churches anymore. We can't blame the youth leaders. We can't blame anyone else. And one day when we all stand before God, none of us can say, well, I assume I was a Christian. My parent was. We can't say that to God. And parents, if we discover that our kids weren't really believers by that time, we can't start pointing the finger. Instead, as parents, I speak to myself, nurture gospel growth in the home. That's where it starts. 
encourage gospel growth in the home, but also in youth group. Ensure that we as leaders do this for your kids as well. Well, the next exhortation is to the youth of our church. The gospel needs to be that priority for you too. First priority for you too. Because in the end, it's about your salvation. It's about you and God. It's about where you'll be for all eternity. It doesn't actually affect me. It's about you and God. So it has to be your priority. As all the worries and troubles of life come up, well, that must be the priority. And anecdotally, I'm sure you can testify to this as well, committed Christians live better lives. You have to see that. Committed Christians live better lives. They have better relationships. Committed Christians are the ones that have better marriages. So if you commit to Christ, you actually have a better life ahead of you. They have more contentment, more joy, because they know where their future is. Then just imagine that. If every one of our youth end up being committed, godly Christian adults, how good would that be? If you marry each other, have kids, how wonderful would that be for gospel ministry? And of course, finally, for our church, for all of us, not parent or not youth, well, we must always ensure, ensure with all our strength and heart that our gospel, the gospel of Christ, is never compromised. And so when ministry does not seem to go well, when we seem to be dropping in our numbers, don't ask us, are they having enough fun? Don't ask us, are they being entertained? But ask us, are they being taught the gospel? Are they being equipped to live the Christian life? And are they loved? They're the right questions. So in life, I'm sure we all make many mistakes. Some are laughable. Now, I might even purposely or not purposely do another load of laundry and get off the hook for another couple more years. But of course, when it comes to the gospel, we must never, never make a mistake with the gospel. For to make a mistake with the gospel is to make Christ out to be a mistake. And thus, that must never, never happen in our church or amongst our youth. Amen. I think Nalene's going to come up and pray for us now.